This is the Working Class Audio Podcast, session 219. Working Class Audio, navigating the world of recording with a working class perspective. Here's your host, Matt Boudreaux. Thanks, Chuck. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. This is session 219 you're listening to. My guest today is Don Sitaro. Don is a Bay Area engineer with 40-plus years of experience. He's a recording engineer, producer, live sound engineer. He's an indie label owner. He's done studio installs, and he's uh, actually, you'll hear in the interview, he actually took some time in his career to work in the world of newspapers and publishing. So it's actually a very, um, not exactly the same story, but very similar to Sarah Carter. If you remember Sarah Started in the motor trade, got into audio, got out, went into beer, got back into audio. Well, Don did audio, newspapers, audio. So it's it's kind of the same. But anyways, it's it's a it's a great story too. So Don Sitaro is coming up here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Okay, wanna clarify something couple episodes ago, we were dissecting the phrase, if you're a tiger, you don't need to tell anybody you're a tiger. And I said, in essence, that guys like Tony Maserati, who I referenced as being tigers or badasses, didn't necessarily have to advertise that on Facebook. And I think that, unfortunately, that got kind of misinterpreted that I didn't think that, you know, a working class engineer should be advertising on Facebook or social media or posting or any of that. And that was far from it. What I meant was, is guys like Tony could just stop posting on social media and bury their head in their work and probably continue to work without a lot of promotion around that. They could just, people would continue to know that Tony was out there working and his records would speak for themselves because you know, they just get a lot of attention. So if you were confused by that whatsoever, my apologies. I didn't mean to offend any of you that are out there busting your asses and trying to work and you're posting on social media to draw attention to the work that you do, just like I'm doing, busting my ass, posting on social media about the work that I'm doing. So I'm in the same boat. So I think there was a little bit of misinterpretation there. And uh, we got into a little bit of a discussion with a couple of my dedicated listeners on Facebook about it. And, uh, and the good thing about that is that we had a discussion about it, which I really enjoy. There it is. If you're a tiger, you don't need to tell anybody you're a tiger. People know. As one of the people who responded said, yeah, if you're a tiger, you don't need to tell anybody you're a tiger. But if you want them to visit you at the tiger cage, you got to put a sign out that you're over there and that, you know, you're visible. <laughs> so there it is. Tigers. Um, also, some time ago on an episode, I was I was essentially kind of scratching my head at the concept that cassettes are becoming popular again. And I kind of took the old guy approach, I have to admit, where I said, you know, that's just, you know, baffling. And I've kind of come around on it. I was digging in, doing a little research, and there's all kinds of commercial releases going out on cassette. Yeah, Guardians of the Galaxy, of course, the awesome mix volume one, that really led the way. And just this year, just uh, recently, Bohemian Rhapsody, the soundtrack, of course, to the to the movie has gone out on cassette. And uh, it's fascinating to me that 
not only that is happening, but also that there are so many indie labels releasing on cassette, which is, you know, pretty cool. It's just a different way of approaching it, of course, in this modern day. But if you think about it, if you grew up with streaming and the internet, you're probably looking for something different. The physical nature of, of the cassette and the inexpensive reproduction cost really is attractive to a lot of people, to a lot of indie artists. And so I'll also include some links to the National Audio Company. This is one of the, if not the oldest, uh, cassette manufacturers in the country, in the United States. But they have managed to survive when many other cassette manufacturers went out of business. They, so they somehow managed to squeak through, but now they are just booming and uh, cassette manufacturing is really, really taken off. So I'll include a link to National Audio, to the National Audio Company, and, as well as several videos uh, with the uh, CEO of that company talking about how they work and how they survived and their story. It's, it's very interesting. They are also manufacturing new, new cassettes, uh, new blank cassettes. So if you need to buy blank audio cassettes, you actually can do it, which is really amazing. They started making their own audio tape. You can buy, for example, you can buy a box of 60-minute tapes, 30 minutes aside for a 10-pack for $44.40. So $4.40 a piece, or you can buy a pack of 90-minute cassettes, a 10-pack for $50.90. On this new tape that they developed, they think it's not equal to the cassette, to the blank cassettes of the past. They think it surpasses it because of what has been learned over the years. So very fascinating. So just out of curiosity, I went ahead and ordered a 10-pack of 60-minute cassettes just to do a little experimentation with some sound tests. I have a, a, a Nakamichi cassette deck here that is in great condition that I use for transfers of cassettes to the digital world. So I'm going to try a few tests of transferring stuff to the cassette. Who knows? Maybe I should do limited edition releases of each interview I do on cassette. If you have an opinion about that, I would love to hear it. Uh, if that sounds like a stupid idea or a great idea, give me your opinion. Send me an email, matt at workingclassaudio.com, or send me a message on Facebook. Uh, tell me what you think. Should we do uh, limited edition cassette runs of working class audio interviews on, on cassette? Yeah. Tell me what you think. I'd be, I'd be curious to know. Let's get to it. Let's talk to Don Sitaro here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Welcome to the podcast, Donald. Thank you for having me. We're back at Highwire Coffee uh, in uh, Rock Ridge, which is a, a neighborhood in Oakland, California. One of my favorite places to come just because you could sit outside and have coffee and watch the world go by. Mm -hmm. So that's what we're doing. So if you hear the traffic noise in the back, people honking, people talking, that's, that's what you're hearing. Well, so we're going to need to dissect your journey a bit. So tell me what attracted you to audio. How did audio become a part of your life, and when did it become a part of your life? It, it became part of my life really pretty early. I think when I started seeing pictures of like some of the great studios, this is like in the early 60s, I was seeing pictures of, you know, like CBS and RCA and, you know, seeing Starbird booms and Neumann mics hanging you know, and these big rooms with baffles and, you know, big round knobbed consoles really kind of attracted me. And then I started figuring out what those guys were doing in those rooms as a kid. And it just became something I kind of liked. I tried to be a drummer at one point and, you know, I just figured I was too far out of drummers I had seen. I I'd set the bar pretty high what I wanted to be like. and. 
I thought, you know, there's something close enough that I'm, I'm better at. And I found that I was good at mixing sound, doing live sound, soldering, building cables, and, and making the systems that, that make that stuff work. And so that's what attracted me. And mainly it was photographs on the back of albums. Yeah. You know, and all those great rooms, black and white photos. I figured that whole world was black and white. I loved it. I just liked the way the spaces looked. And, and then that attracted me to it. And then I found out what they actually did. And I, then I found that a lot more intriguing than being a musician. And why was that more intriguing than being a musician? Because I kind of realized I wasn't all that as far as being a musician. And I felt like this is something that I was m more attuned to. And I guess the idea of being on stage is a little bit frightening. It's just something I, I don't like being in front of people. I, yeah. I think I like being behind the scenes kind of guy. And the more I played out, you know, playing live, I figured, boy, this is not so much for me, you hmm. know. And it makes me more nervous, you know, than, than doing this. Yeah. You know, this still makes me nervous. And if, <laughs> if I wasn't nervous, I don't think I'd be any good at it, yeah. you know. Because th there's a certain anxiety, I think, that makes you good at it. You yeah. Because you're always, at least I am, because I do a lot of live sound, too. Yeah. I'm constantly thinking, you know, three chess moves ahead. What if this happens? How do I get out of it and make the show still run? You know, those kind of things. I'm always kind of doing it. So there's a certain amount of anxiety that's going on all the time. So was there any one person or persons that ultimately got you in to the world of audio? No. At the time, we're talking about, you know, like the mid-60s to early 70s there were no schools at the time there was really nothing that was pointing you to it like this it was you know and so I was kind of bucking the system my parents did not understand what this was you know it took them a lot of years to finally understand what this was really all about and you know so I was just kind of doing it on my own when I got out of high school there actually was a school for it and it was I think the first one and it was the College for Recording Arts in San Francisco which was the old Golden State recorders. Oh, right. And I was one of the I think I was in the first class and actually it was it wasn't very good. <laughs> <laughs> well then I won't ask who taught the class. <laughs> but one of the one of the guys that was in it is a guy named Vance Frost who was an engineer at Wally Hyders and at Golden State and I got more out of talking with him before and after and his instruction on tape editing and things like that I thought were worth the price of admission. The regular curriculum, it was just too new. They didn't know what they were doing. They were trying to figure it out on the yeah. run. It was helpful in that respect. You know, I was exposed to big time equipment in a big room with engineers that had done stuff. It was worthwhile in that respect, listening to him tell stories about some of the Hyder stuff that went on and sessions that went well and went bad. What year know. was this? This was like 1975. Well, so this guy was bringing that experience to, the, to, to your world of tape editing and... Yeah, and just how they did stuff there, because it, it was a little bit different because, you know, Golden State at that time, I think one of the reasons they opened the school was there because of places like Wally Hyder's, which was sucking up all the business in San Francisco. They had the newest, latest, greatest of everything. And so uh, it was just kind of not doing as well as someplace like Wally Hyder's. So hearing about what 
you know the state of the art was was really interesting. And what was musically going on in San Francisco at that time that you remember? The acts I was listening to were uh, things I, I was listening to the Tubes. I loved them, you know, and I loved that progressive kind of music that wasn't standing still and, and just going in all directions at once. Hmm. That was one of my favorites at the time. Funk music from that era, you know. I also worked with a soul band out of Stockton. And we'd come up and work in Oakland, Emeryville, places like that. And that was just entirely too much fun. It was a 10-piece band with horns, you know, and I was one of the road crew. And I was moving to B3 and all that other stuff every night. But it was a really a lot of fun. So what took place after this school? Where did your journey take you to next? I started a whole bunch of stuff. So since we're talking the 70s, there's, there's been a lot of time, so I'll kind of condense it. But I started a studio in uh, outside of Modesto in a place, a little town called Ripon. I partnered with another man. We had a 33-40 quarter-inch four-track. Then Tascam was becoming something at that point in time. And we got a half-inch four-track and then a half-inch eight and their Model 10 mixer. I think it had 12 inputs at the time, you know. It was expandable, but that's all we had money for. And we were doing local bands, and I did that for a couple of years. And then moved to Stockton, and there was a place called Studio C, and it was a one-inch eight. They had a Langevin console. They had a 3M Model 56. Doc Chin's place. Dr. Chin. <laughs> I had been there. Yeah. Yeah. And that, this was, you know, Quite a while. This was in 76 or 77, and it was a one-inch eight-track. It was rock solid. It just worked all day. The Langevin console, which I, now I think he's pulled the preamps, the mic pre's out of it. You know, and they're is he know, still alive? Yes, he's still alive, and the studio is still open. Wow. <laughs> and uh, so I did a, a year or so there, and then I moved to a studio in Modesto called Villa Recorders. And they had a Trident B range, and they started out with a uh, an Ampex 1200, then went to a Studer. I worked there for a little bit, but during that time, I was there during the the installation of of the studio. I uh, helped with the installation, met with a couple of guys from Los Angeles, the, the company they'd hired to do the install, and I found doing the install. Very wonderful, you know, it was just something, you know, because I was a solder kid, you know, that's what I did. I built all the cables for any band I ever worked for and just built snakes and this and that kind of stuff. And doing an install became something then I started to do. I got connected through that, that fella and through the studio I met a, a fella named Harry Seatam who worked for Neil Young. And so then I started doing work out at Neil's ranch. It was something I really enjoyed doing. And so my journey kind of shifted from actually pushing faders to actually wiring studios. And I did that for most of the 80s. It's kind of a sideways jump, yeah? Yeah, sideways in terms of pushing faders to soldering. But to go to Neil Young's place, that's, that's a bit of a jump. Yeah. In terms of high profile. Yeah, and it was really a lot of fun to be out there, crazy amounts of equipment, and then all of it wasn't recording equipment. I worked on his train set. He had a Lionel train set that was uh, three car, uh, car garages wide. He had a three car garage and this board that it was made mostly for his son, Ben. And, uh, at, and then at one point he bought into the Lionel 
company. They were making a computer, you know, and this is like in 1980, 81, a computerized way to run it on a board that big so things wouldn't jump tracks, so you could, you know, actuate arms and move tracks and stuff like that. And so I did a lot of that work too. That was part of the Neil Young experience. Wow. And so uh, I, there was one stretch of like two and a half weeks where I spent on one of those little things you roll under a car with. Right. And I was underneath wiring. Every piece of track had to be wired, you know, with power and data cables into the central computer, which I didn't even see at the time, but we were getting ready for it. So. I did that for a lot of years, wiring studios. There was a, it was also a time too when labels were dishing out quite a bit of money, yeah. and instead of using that money for to pay conventional studios, the artists were building their own studios and essentially paying themselves. I thought you were about to say the artists were building their own train sets. <laughs> no, no, <laughs> only that one that I know. Of. <laughs> only that one. So I I did several studios for artists where you know they would just. You know, and these were these were analog studios. This is way before anything digital, and so they were bigger deals. And then conventional studios, regular uh, non-private studios. I was doing those kind of things also. Hey, our friends over at DistroKid have created the DistroKid app for Android, which allows you to do some key things such as check your stats from Apple and Spotify, edit release metadata, upload new releases, and a host of other features. And remember, WCA listeners get 30% off your first year at DistroKid. And if you just head on over to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30, you can follow the link, get your 30% off, and be off to the races. So check our friends out at DistroKid and make sure and get your 30% off by going to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30. Where did the training come from to do installation work, to do soldering? It was self-taught, and I learned an awful lot from that gentleman that wired. It was, it was a company called Studio Maintenance Service out of L.A. Just from this guy, just watching how he braided cables and, you know, and, and prepared ends and stuff like that, I immediately just fell into it. It was something I was already doing. He just helped refine it. Yeah. And, you know, funnel it into the way things were done at studios at that time, you know. Was that kind of a, was that an hourly-based gig? They were usually hourly. And I'll have to tell you, Neil paid the best. I bet he did. With the exception that I, there was a studio I did in Vancouver that they flew me up there. And I don't even know how I got hooked up with them. But I, they flew me up there a couple of times. And we installed a Neve. Uh, it was for an ad agency. And they had a big room where they would do string dates and things like that. And they had bought a Neve. I was there from start to finish. And, and so it was, it, was, it was an interesting time. And that studio wiring went on to where I got connected with live sound companies. McCune in San Francisco. And then through them, I got connected to Meyer Sound. Ah. So I was doing like uh, splitter boxes and mic snakes and mic cables and all kinds of cables for McCune for their live shows and then for Meyer this was early in their uh, uh, they had just started manufacturing I would made wiring harnesses for almost all the speakers that they ever made and speaker cables all the stuff all that kind of wiring and I was doing it in Modesto both of these companies would ship it down to me I would get kind of like San Francisco wages in Modesto and I, they, 
and they would uh, put it on a bus, and we'd bus it back and forth. I was doing stuff for like uh, with uh, McCune. They had just started getting really heavily into musicals and Broadway shows. We'd make 200 mic cables or mic snakes, and for a show, and that show would go out on the road, and they wouldn't see it for three years. I was constantly making stuff for them. So the level of detail and the level of quality involved there? There was was a a very high expectation of what had to happen, you know, and we also did the uh, Democratic Convention when it was in uh, San Francisco. I think it was in 84. And I think I made about a thousand mic cables. Yeah. By yourself? By myself. Wow. It was hard for them to get their staff because they were constantly doing shows and, and, and running around and stuff like that to sit and make my cables. So if they had a guy that wasn't being tagged in the shop, you know, to pulled away to do something else, right? that they could just, these could get done. And I proved that I was pretty proficient at getting them out on schedule. Yeah, they had to give me X amount of notice, you know. And it wasn't like a thousand cables at a time. I, I was doing, you know, a couple hundred here, 50, 80 here and there. But by the time the Democratic Convention thing was, was complete, it was about a thousand cables. And uh, it was just insane, you know. And I totaled up once from all my invoices what I had made for McCune and during my time with them I made about 6,000 mic cables. Oh yeah, my and I, I don't even want to think about what that would look like in one place. So, I have to ask you, are you completely adverse to the idea of buying pre-made mic cables today? Pretty much. Yeah, yeah you make well, your own. Why would I do that? Right. <laughs> why? Yeah. <laughs> Got to add to your number. <laughs> yeah. It, it's just too easy for me. Further on in my journey, I started doing live sound. I mean, uh, live recording, and I needed, you know, to get a lot of equipment, sometimes very quick, and so I'd buy a pre-made snake, and then I'd pop it open, and it was real sad to look at, you know, and I even wondered how they made it work, you know, but it did, and I would usually, you know, the OCD in me would make me go back to the, yeah, I'd I'd do the show that I bought it for, I'd take it apart later, put it back in a way I would like, in the way they're supposed to be wired. <laughs> you know, I know, it's just, isn't that, don't you get this OCD kind of, I'm, is, I'm, there, is I'm, there a theme I'm with all the engineers? I'm all starting the, to get it now. With me, but all the engineers you interview. Everybody has a little OCD in the audio world. It just shows itself in different ways. ways. Yeah. You know, the same thing goes with my, my Pro Tools files. They have to look a certain way. Oh, yeah. That's part of the deal. Yeah. <laughs> it's how, you know. But when I was doing analog recording, my tracks had to line up a certain way. They went in a certain order. So when I mixed, they all showed up in the same place. Like if I was doing an album project, they all showed up in the same place on the console. So I wasn't having to keep resetting EQs and inserts and all that other stuff. It's a little bit like, uh, you know, Steve Jobs, I guess. My understanding is is that he would always stress about how things looked on the inside, even though nobody was going to ever see mm-hmm. the inside of, of a product. Yeah, but there's a guy like me here and there, and, and, and him, too, yeah. that will pop these things open. Yeah. <laughs> well, so, McCune, Meyer, Meyer Sound. I worked for Apogee. I did, I did work for uh, Apogee, the uh, speaker company, oh. not Apogee Digital, right. uh, and then Summit Audio. I was building the little 990 op amps right. for them for a while. And then 
after a while, I just took a break. You know. Yeah. It, before you get into that, were you working full time, doing these different tasks? Well, as full time as they could keep me, and you know, and th- th- this is something I always never understood. Is it was like it was this big conspiracy that they would all make me work at once, or then they wouldn't talk to me for months. You know, <laughs> and it was like the, it was. Let's see how far we can push, Don. You know. Right. But uh, no, I, it was. It was all just doing that kind of stuff, and then I would, I, you know, put live sound in when I could, you know, and whatever little bits of recording I could. Was there a bit of diversification that was happening for you at that time? I know I needed to have alternate streams of income. Sometimes I did it, sometimes I didn't, because, you know, if I was to get something very regular, a regular type job, then with one of these McCune monster jobs would come along what am I going to do and so you know I don't know in, in hindsight I don't know if it was maybe the best time of my life financially it was it was fun <laughs> it was fulfilling but I, it probably wasn't the best way to make a living yeah but you but you were you know surviving I, I was surviving and part of my survival was credit card debt yeah. <laughs> you know you know to fill in those gaps and sometimes I would get that paid off when the when the the big jobs would come through with these people, and sometimes not, and so you yeah, know, that was a you know credit card was a floater. Yeah, kind of you know, and I've heard you talk about this too on some of your other podcasts that you were living that way too for a while, constantly. You know, and that you're finally out. Yeah. And the last podcast I listened of you, you said you'd gone somewhere probably a yes or something like that, and you paid it in cash, and it was a very good feeling. <laughs> Yeah, As yeah. As opposed to knowing when you get back, there's going to be a payment waiting oh, for you. Oh, yeah. In fact, uh, God, I was just stressing out the other day because we had to get a new water heater. Like, you know, you can't, like, shop around and put it off. And No, you got to buy one. You got to get on it right then and there. And yeah. so it was like, you know, 1800 bucks, And I was yeah. like, oh, my God, I'm going to have to, I'm going to put that on the credit card that gets the most miles, and then I'm going to pay that off yeah. <laughs> as yeah. soon as the bill shows up. Mm-hmm. But it's it's a different mentality once you get out of it. Mm-hmm. So what came next? At a certain point, I took kind of a break in the 90s. I was still doing live sound a little bit, but uh, the, uh, the studio wiring thing really slowed down and the industrial wiring. Budgets weren't what they used to be with artists and all the artists in this area were pretty much done it's you know they built their studios and the industry changed too you know about the time i quit is when adats came out yep and that changed things that moved things even more towards home studios and in an easier way to wire whereas even with the Tascam era stuff there was still some wiring that had to be done if you wanted a decent patch bay and those kind of things were fading away and so i just kind of took some time out and I started working for a newspaper. I was in newspaper publishing. I was, you know, it was at the beginning of computers for them. And I, I did that for a while. Of all the things to get into, how did you get into that? One of the, my musician friends was in it. And he knew how I felt about computers and how I worked well with them. And computers at this particular newspaper in Modesto were just starting to creep in. And uh, they needed people. And so I was in the pre-press department and then in the color quality department and I did that kind of stuff. But this break I, I said I took didn't last long. Right. You know, you don't not do this. 
once you get exposed to it, yeah. it's hard to not want to come back. And so I was doing little bits, and I started doing a lot more live sound. I got through this same person, got hooked up with a, uh, a live sound company in the Modesto area, and we were doing regional things here and there. And so in between my regular job that I had at, at a newspaper, which I had for 16 years, yeah, I was doing all this other stuff too. But at the beginning of that, I had taken a break. You just yeah, yeah. you were focusing on, on, on yeah, the I'd, publishing. I'd, I'd done too many bad, you know, live sounds at bars and clubs that just you know it doesn't matter what you do, they are what they are. Right. And you know they're just clubs and it's just you know yeah. And so it, it just didn't get any better. So I just took a little break. I wanted a regular job for a little bit, get benefits. Yeah. And so because of that, I got benefits. I also got a retirement. One of my income streams now, you know, it all kind of worked out. You were in the publishing world for 16 years? Yeah. But you were still doing stuff on the side. Yeah, yeah. You know, they were just, you know, weekend warrior kind of things. Where yeah. you just go out, you do something. Yeah, and you're beat up by the time you get back. Oh, yeah. But that's that thing where you, you, you know, it's something you do. And, and you... And, it, and you find the energy somewhere, I guess. Right. You know, and that's how, how that kind of works out. When you were in the publishing world and doing the Weekend Warrior things, did you ever at any point want to just throw up your hands and walk away from that and get back into audio full time? Not so much because I, I really started enjoying, you know, the security of having a regular job and benefits and all that other stuff. So, but Pro Tools started coming in. So I saw that as a way that where I could do this at home. I didn't have to have a, you know, a real studio anymore. And I could, I, I started, you know, venturing into that. And then towards the 2000s, then a uh, performing arts center was built in Modesto, the Gallo Center for the Arts. And I started working there. Uh, first is part-time. And I was doing that part-time with my publishing, <laughs> you know, however that worked. I'd work on nights and weekends. Eventually, it, it uh, came into uh, where I was there full-time. And so I was doing that. And then once I started doing that, then I, I way into Pro Tools and being able to, you know, do work at home, work at studios, take stuff home, you know, not have to have a multi-track machine at home, you know, that kind of stuff. Yeah, having a two-inch machine in your house is a little cumbersome. Yeah, you know, and yeah. <laughs> so, and that's that's pretty much brings us just about up to where I am now, which you know, I, I did, you know, in the last year take my workload at, at the Performing Arts Center down from full-time to where I'm on call. So I just work a few days a month, and I'm doing recording all the time now in between, because I found that I was every day off. Yeah. I was, you know, going and recording somewhere. Well, it just after a while, it just burns you out, you know, and you, you have, you know, 10, 12-hour days at a Performing Arts Center, and then you go drive somewhere to go do recording. You know, it just it's a bit much. I was talking in my last episode with uh, Nick Luca, who's a, a friend of mine who I originally met when he was living in Tucson. He's moved to Los Angeles since. And a lot of his complaints about Los Angeles, well, one of the few complaints is, is he said it's transportation. It's, the gigs are great. It's the transportation. It's the getting to and from that's always a pain. And as time goes along, it seems the Bay Area just keeps getting worse and worse and worse. Mm -hmm. You currently live in Modesto. Mm -hmm. So how do you... How do you carve out a, a sane work recording schedule well, for yourself? I, I have a mixed room at home. I do all my mixing and editing at home. You know, I have a, you know, a, like a C24 
So, I, you know, I'm an old guy, so I like to have faders. And But I do really appreciate Pro Tools. Having lived through analog, there's a lot of stuff I don't want to go back to. I like the idea of being able to mix at home, do the editing at home, and then I just come up to the Bay Area uh, for big rooms when I want to track. You know, I use uh, places like Shark Bite, 25th Street, Prairie Sun. Yeah. And then closer to Modesto in Stockton, there's a place called uh, The Press, which um, is a nice little studio. It used to be called Downtown Sound. It's a Bob Hodes-designed room. I use that for overdubbing, you know, some things. And, you know, things that are direct I can do at my house. But the drives up here sometimes can be, you know, as much as I love Prairie Sun, the drive is really long. It's like two and a half hours, and if it's a bad day, it can be almost three. And it's a, a little bit of a, a, a sell for me to get my clients to want to go there, you know, because of the drive, you know, and staying overnight and doing that. To go to Prairie Sun. To Prairie Sun yeah. or Shark Bite or any of these places, you know, instead of driving up and down every day. Yeah. You, you know, you're going to add up to, you know, two hours or four hours every day. That makes for a real long day if you're if you're buying ten hour day studios. Yeah, you know it makes for a real long day, and uh, and if you're buying multiple days, it just it gets to be ugly. And so uh, you want to stay overnight so you can be fresh the next day. So I'd love for there to be a great studio uh, out Modesto way. It's not <laughs> happening. Right, and you're not you're not. Uh in the mood to build a fresh studio. Oh, every once in a while I get tempted, and then, you know, I talked to a couple of people about that, and this one fella had some great advice. He says, you know, Don, you're gonna, you know, it'd be great to have your own studio, you know, and all, but like three days a week, you're gonna love it. You know, pushing faders is gonna be great, but the other four days worrying about how you're gonna make the bills, and, you know, there's an air conditioner that's going out, or doing all that other stuff, is going to kind of kill your love of it. Yeah. And it could. And, you know, how did you feel about having a studio? Oh, I hated it. <laughs> you know. And it, it was sad to in my studio, but, oh, my God, I'm so happy I did. Mm-hmm. It's one of the best things I ever did. Mm-hmm. About a year and a half ago, I signed up for Sampley.app, and I have to report back and say that I'm completely thrilled with it and it's working out quite well. It gives me the ability to upload mixes and masters to the website and provide a super pro looking interface for my clients. They can drop comments in the timeline. They can listen on any device. They can listen to it in high res. And if I want them to pay for the mix or master before they download it, because of the Stripe integration, I can set that up. There's also Dropbox integration, which allows me to quickly create a folder in my Dropbox, which automatically syncs with Sampley, makes it much more simple. You should check it out for yourself, but there's a deal to be had. So use the code WCA20. Go to Sampley.app or Sampley.app. Use the code WCA20, get 20% off, and you'll be off to the races. It's a fantastic tool that I think you're going to enjoy and will definitely make you look a lot more pro when you're delivering files to clients. Skip that whole business where you send it to them over Dropbox. That looks totally amateur at this point. Use Sampley.app and use that code WCA20 and I think you're going to be really thrilled. Sampley.app. Check it out. What keeps you in audio? Why do you why do you stay? Why do you continue to do it? I I some parts of me I don't know. Yeah. It's just because it's what I do. I always do and I just even I can't listen to music 
without dissecting it. I can't go to a concert. I'm really uncomfortable Ask my wife how it is to sit next to me when you go to a concert with Don, you know, because he's not paying attention to the show as the production of the show. There's that portion of it, and I think there's something really fulfilling about it. It just, when things turn out right, everything in the world is kind of right, you know, and in the last few years, uh, I've been actually acted like a producer on a, on a few things, and it's really gratifying when it's all said and done that you had a part of that, even more than just being the engineer. Engineering is, is gratifying enough, but to be part of the, the creation process is really great. And so that's, I think that's what keeps me in it. I think it keeps me young, you know. You know, as we sit here and we go back over your past and we look at the path that you've taken, if you, knowing what you know now, if you could restructure in any way would you have done anything differently? Do you I see ways that you could improve that I, I probably would have been a little bit more aggressive in trying to get work. But if I couldn't get work in the industry, I would have probably been a little bit more aggressive in trying to get alternate income streams that would have fit the, uh, the time frame that I needed it to, to fit, just so I had more money in between. Yeah. You know, right now, things are really pretty good for me. I'm able to cut back on the amount of time I work full-time to almost nothing, and I've got a pension, and I've got some other incomes that are making it work for me. Right. And to the point where I've started a, a little independent label. Right. You know, and so, you know, which, you know, that is just like a money pit. Yeah. Oh yeah, <laughs> and that was going to be my next question. So tell me, tell me about how do you do a record label in today's day and age? I'm discovering how it's done, and I, I thought it was easier than than is turning out to be. But it's it's not, you know, as crazy I guess as the old record label system that used to exist. You know, with the internet and there's lots of distributors I, that I have. I have a distributor, and just getting started. It's only been the labels only existed for not quite a year, or a year now. I've been working more on the artistic side, getting product out. We've done a lot of re-releases of, you know, it's mostly Central Valley artists and some, a couple of Bay Area artists. But for the most part, it's just on a smaller level, trying to give exposure to these people, you know, that, uh, that I've worked with through the years. And some new people that I've met, the company is called uh, IAC Records. That's Independent Artist Collective. And I'm in business with another fellow who's also one of the artists, a guy named Eric Westfall. We've got some re-releases of his on the label, and we're working on a new album for him and new albums for a couple of the other artists that we've done re-releases on. It's a frustrating part of the recording life is that you work on stuff that is enjoyable, you feel good about it, and then... It goes nowhere. It may never see the light of day. And your your work is not shown. The artist's songs exactly. are not highlighted. Exactly. It is frustrating. Yeah, and I found that I was doing almost all of this at one point, and then I just figured, why don't I just like go that other little 10%, do the distribution part, too, and get that stuff out. And it's turned out to be a little bit harder and different than I thought it would be, but who knows? You know, I, I don't want to make millions of dollars, and I know I probably won't, but if I have enough money to where I can do it again, do another, uh, another album with an artist, you know, then that's really, I just want to keep working for as long as I can.
you know. Hmm. And so it's it's not so much about money because you know there's a, a million of these labels out there. When you were working in publishing in, in in the newspaper world for all those years, were you in your head? Were you planning ahead, thinking when I'm done here, I'm going to get back into the world of recording? Uh, I, I wasn't thinking of when I'm done. I was doing it at the time too. Oh, <laughs> you know, right. And, uh, but I was probably thinking I'd like to do it bigger. Yeah. You know, and so the next jump was that that performing arts center job, and that was that was a great thing. It's just that after a while, some of the shows just really tear at you. You know, kids shows, corporate events. I was I was getting a lot of those, and spending a whole day doing kids shows kind of gets after you. Some of them I'd get in there at 7 o'clock in the morning and I have, will have done three kids shows, three performances by 12 and load out and then maybe do an evening show. You know, and it's just a bit much. Huh. And especially of content that really doesn't appeal to me. I'm not a kid anymore. You know? Yeah, yeah. When you are in those positions where you're being paid to do the thing that you love doing but you're doing it with something that you don't really like. Exactly. Well, even in the beginning... Those, those kind of wore on me, and, and I would just look forward to the ones that weren't like that, where artists would not be bring. you know, there's plenty of artists that bring their own sound crews in. Yeah. And so all we are is essentially accommodating them to our space. But then there's a lot of them that don't carry people. And so then, you know, then I get to be a monitor engineer for the day, you know, and, and a lot of that, I find being a monitor engineer is great. I love working with the artists. That's as close to like recording, you know, in a live situation for me that I really like. Yeah. You know, because you're working directly with the artist. You know, you're not working, you know, to make the audience happy. You're, you're making them happy. Well, cool, man. Well, we're out of time, but uh, thanks so much for coming out to Highwire Coffee today and you're quite welcome. meeting me, uh, meeting with me. Is there anything that we uh, left out that we should mention? Well, one of the things you asked me about was mentors. Yeah. Let's talk about and that. You know, and I, I'll be brief with this, but you know, just about everybody as an audio engineer that I've ever worked with has been a mentor in one way or another. And even the guys that, you know, they, they told me what I w- didn't want to do, you know, you know, if they were had a bad attitude or something like that, I, that's what I don't want to be like. Right. You know, and so I, I've, I've been able to learn something from most everybody. And I'm sure if I sit here and talk with you enough, I'm going to learn something from you. You know, what I've, in the last five years, mentor-wise, the the people that have been really good for me are guys that are about half my age that are end up being assistants at the at the studios that I use. A guy like uh, Nate Nasita at uh, Prairie Sun, and uh, do you know Adam Myatt at Sharkbite? Yeah, I've met Adam. These guys, you know, started with Pro Tools. That's the beginning of their recording experience. You know, they may have gone back analog and done all this other stuff later, but their workflows are just so much faster and different than mine coming from where I did. You know, learning how to be a computer guy halfway through my life instead of at 10 years old. Yeah. And so those are the guys I find really that I'm learning a lot from. Every time I, I, I'm with one of them, there I learn something. And so those guys, I think, you know, are more than any of the the big engineers that you always read about that I you know you'll hear a guy say that this big engineer was a mentor well I'm sure that's true but I find it you know you can get 
this kind of knowledge from a lot of different places. For a lot of people too, we naturally think older people that can't, that were at an early part of our career, but they can be younger people now. Those are the guys that I really kind of look up to now. Hmm. And I find it exciting to go see, you know, be working in one of these studios. And these guys, I'm just waiting, you know. Okay, there's something that's going to happen during my 10 hours here that I know. <laughs> you know I better get my notebook out because I might learn something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so it's, it's great. Very cool. Thanks for, thanks for meeting with me, Don. It's great to, great to hang out with you. Okay, thank you very much for having me. Awesome. Don Sitaro here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Thanks so much for being with me today. And if you haven't stopped by the Working Class Audio website, that's at workingclassaudio.com. Our friends over at Cali Audio have just introduced the brand new LP UNF system, which is meant to give you everything you need from a studio monitor in a package that you can basically set up anywhere. And the system is specifically designed for your desk. So no matter how else you're using your desk, reflections from the drivers to the desk to your ears are accounted for giving you a perfectly clear picture of your mix that you can rely on to translate well. Whether you're putting them on stands behind your desk, on a desk away from walls, on a desk against a wall, on a desk on speaker stands away from the walls, there's a number of configurations and they have settings on the back to accommodate all of that and more. And if price is a concern, never fear. They're priced at $299. That's right, pretty affordable. Head on over to caliaudio.com and check out the new LP UNF. I want to thank our dear friend, Mr. Cliff Truesdale for the Working Class Audio theme music and we want to thank Chuck Smith for his great voice and I want to thank you thanks for coming back week after week tell your friends spread the word let's keep going and until next time take care hey I know many of you are aware of this but for those of you that aren't aware Working Class Audio sponsors the forum over at gearspace.com called Audio Life and quite simply put, it's a place where audio professionals can go to talk with other audio professionals about things other than audio gear, including life hacks, work-life balance, health and hearing loss. You know, if you want to talk with other audio professionals who can identify with what your lifestyle is like and how it relates to things going on in the world outside of audio, this is a great place to go and check out. So head on over to gearspace.com, check out Audio Life. Many of the same topics that we discuss here on the show on Gearspace.com. So check that out.